Well, do you like to be late? Well, maybe a better question for me to ask is this. Are you normally late? Now, don't raise your hand. We don't, it's too convicting. We don't, we just want you to keep this between you and God. Most importantly, you know who you are and God knows who you are. Whether it's late to school, late to work, late to meet a friend, late to a church service. Thankfully, nobody's walking through the doors right now as I say those words. You can probably tell that I don't like to be late. I set two different alarms in the morning. Church services generally start on time here at Redeemer. I try to get to my meetings early. Well, maybe you're someone who's on time, but you struggle with other people being late. One of my first mentors would say, when you're late, you're robbing someone else of their time. Now, I personally don't necessarily agree with that, but it seems that some of the people in John 11 agreed with my mentor. Some of the people in John 11 were perplexed at why Jesus was late. Mary, Martha, even the crowds were confused. Jesus was late, or so they thought. Well, there are seven signs in the Gospel of John with the purpose that we might believe that Jesus gives life, that he is the Christ. Today we see the seventh and final sign. All of the other signs, all leading up to this seventh and climactic sign or miracle. And our outline over the past two weeks has been the six surprises in the seventh sign. And we looked at the first three surprises last week. So just in review, or if you weren't with us, we first saw a surprising delay. Jesus, upon hearing that his good friend Lazarus is sick, what does he do? Well, he, he hangs back. He waits, and he's late, they feel. The second thing was a surprising trip. Jesus and his disciples eventually do go back, and they do go back into enemy territory, but it was a road trip that made him go to the very people who had just tried to stone him and kill him. And thirdly, we see a surprising claim. Jesus is saying, I so identify with salvation that I am the resurrection and the life. Three surprises. Last week, the first three. Now, today, the next three. And we'll hit six surprises in the seventh sign. So first, number four, a surprising emotion. We see this in verses 28 through 37. I'm calling it a surprise, but it's actually absolutely shocking. Look at verse 28 and following. When Jesus had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's stop there. Well, at this point in the narrative, in verse 30, Jesus hadn't really even entered into the center part of the village yet. There was no tea time, no break for refreshments. Now, Mary runs out. Unlike Martha, she falls at the feet of Jesus, but similar words are uttered, aren't they? If only you were here, Jesus. If only you had come earlier. If only you had been here, our brother would still be alive. Jesus, you were late. Verse 31, the mourning family, along with those professional mourners I mentioned last week, they all followed her. They were thinking that Mary was headed to the tomb. But look at what happens. Jesus sees everyone weeping, and what was his response? Well, verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We'll come back to that in a minute. Jesus asks where Lazarus is laid in verse 34. That's not because he doesn't know. It reminds us of the time back in Genesis where God asks Adam, where are you, Adam? It wasn't because he didn't know. He had a greater purpose. In Adam's case, it was to draw, to draw him to confession and repentance. The reason here is so that the people would follow him to the tomb, that they would follow Mary to the tomb as witnesses. Then wedged in between the action, we get one of the most breathtaking verses in the Bible. It's also the shortest verse of the Bible. It's the easiest verse to memorize in the Bible. It's two words. Verse 35. Jesus wept. I don't know what comes to your mind when you read those two words, but this is stunning, shocking, striking, surprising, and beautiful. It may be the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's also one of the most precious verses in the Bible. It's a bit awkwardly placed in the chapter. You could erase it and the narrative would flow more smoothly, more seamlessly, but instead the verse is an awkward stop right in the middle. I think it's because John clearly wants to give us a glimpse of Christ's humanity and his heart because Jesus truly did put on our nature. Now friends, if you wanted to make up a a God, a fake God, what emotions would you give to the God? You'd probably make them out to be courageous, bold, strong. And Jesus no doubt was all those things. 
But here we have the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, God who became man in tears. A glimpse of his humanity, Jesus wept. This is not just a solo tear. It's not one of those pretty cries. Do you know what I mean? Where one tear just drips down the side of your cheek. No, this is a big old man cry. In the original Greek language, Jesus wept means Jesus wept. He was crying. He was weeping. One scholar notes John's point here is that these tears were not the professional tears of a hired mourner or a detached spectator so why is Jesus crying here that's a good question it certainly wasn't weakness sure he didn't look like the superheroes in the Marvel movies but we know that he is God in the flesh he can't be crying because he misses his friend if you know you're about to raise the man from the dead in five minutes, you're probably not crying, thinking about the memories that you had together. That can't be it. Think about the context. Jesus is looking out and he sees everyone crying. He sees everyone wailing in the face of death. He's deeply troubled. That text means something closer to being outraged, deeply disturbed. In fact, in that word in other literature refers to the snorting of horses. Apply it to human emotion and you have great anger. D.A. Carson says, Jesus was outraged. R.C. Sproul writes, Jesus saw everyone around him weeping and he groaned in anger. Now, Jesus isn't crying because he lost his friend. He's crying because of the reality of death itself. Death is horrible. There's no way to sugarcoat it this morning. Death is the enemy. Jesus weeps because death broke his heart. Human nature had become corrupt. The immortal had become mortal. Death had entered into the world. And death is not okay. Death is not okay. It's evil. We never say death is good, even as Christians. Now, maybe... Like me, you found yourself at one time or another saying this after a friend suffers the loss of a loved one. Well, how wonderful now that your fill-in-the-blank, husband, wife, father, mother, uncle, aunt, is now in a better place. Okay, yes, that is good theology. If they were a follower of Christ, sure, yes, of course they're in a better place. They're absolutely in a better place. They are face-to-face -face with Jesus, as we've just sung today. But let's not try to make ourselves or others feel better by saying death is good. Death is never good. Death is not good. Jesus here is deeply troubled. troubled. He's outraged at death. Death was a judgment and a punishment for Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. After their sin, they went and were sent outside the garden, only now clothed in animal skins from an animal who needed to be killed. Then years later, Adam and Eve themselves tasted of this death. And while sin and, and death entered into the world that day, we are just as culpable as we not only born into sin, but we follow in the footsteps of sin each and every day of our lives. 
Unless Jesus comes back first, we will taste death as well as a consequence to their sin and of our sin. Death breaks Christ's heart. Yes, he is the resurrection. Yes, he is the life. Yes, but it's not a good thing to have that body buried in the ground. As one man has said, Jesus was moved by the mortality of those created to be immortal. And so Jesus wept. Death grieves him. And he overflows with compassion for Lazarus and for all humanity subject to death. Now, this is not what we expect here. First, we expected him to run because love runs and to go save his friend. Instead, he delays. He shows up late. And then what is the first thing Jesus does upon arrival? Well, he's angry at death. He cries at the reality of it. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we have a Savior who deeply loves and cares for us. That we have a Savior who has entered into our sorrows. We have a Savior who has literally entered into our world. And while it may sometimes feel like he's late, he's always there weeping alongside us. He's tender-hearted towards his people. And do you know what is the only description in the Bible that Jesus gives himself? A little Bible trivia for this Sunday morning. Just two words that Jesus uses. Matthew chapter 11, two words that Jesus uses to describe himself, and they are these, that he is gentle and lowly. That's how Jesus describes himself. Pastor Dane Ortland recently wrote a book with that same title. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is lowly. Jesus feels the pain of his people. He is both God and man, and here we have the humanity of Christ in full display. Christian friend, in your pain, Jesus hurts with you. He hurts in our suffering. He knows it. Hebrews chapter 4, in every respect, in every respect, not a little respect, not some respect, not partial respect, not almost all respect, not a lot of respect, but in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are. Ortland writes of Jesus' humanity and says, Jesus is not Zeus. He was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. He woke up with his hair in a mess. He might have had pimples as a teenager. He was a normal man, and he knew what it was like to be hungry, rejected, shamed, embarrassed, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. Oh, friends, Jesus knew what it was like to be lonely. His friends, his closest friends abandoned him. But while the rest of the world can unfriend you with the click of a button, Jesus is always with you. Well, consider your life. Has a family member betrayed you? Have you ever felt misunderstood? Cheated in the workplace? Faced chronic illness? Been picked on by another student in your school? 
Friends, Jesus is able to sympathize. In every respect, in every respect, he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses, all of our hurts, all of our tears. So go to him. He weeps with those who weep. Look to him in your pain. Jesus wept. Well, what was the response to his emotion in our text? Well, we, we see the answer, verse 36. Some saw his tears and saw love. They got it. Yet others were cynical. They doubted his power. Oh, he's just crying because he couldn't have saved his friend's life. Was Jesus weak? Well, we see the obvious answer in the next surprise, the fifth surprise or the second point today, a surprising miracle. Verses 38 through 44 a surprising miracle. Look at this with me. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, let's connect this back to the first surprise we looked at last week, the surprising delay. It would have been four days now since the death of Lazarus. Jesus asks for the stone blocking the tomb to be moved. Now Martha, she's smart. She understood what happens after four days to a dead body. There would have been a bad odor, a horrible stink, putrid smell after four days. There was a common superstition that during the first two or three days after death that you really weren't fully dead, that your spirit kind of hovered over you for up to three days. So raising the dead after a couple of days really wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe you've heard some of the crazy back-to-life stories on the internet. Maybe you've read one of them. I read about a Chinese man this week who during his funeral, in the very middle of the proceedings, he himself opened the lid of his wooden coffin, sat up, and said hi to everyone. He asked his children, what are we doing here? The man had been extremely weak, and everyone in his village thought that he was dead. And they were actually eight hours, this is a long funeral, they were eight hours into the funeral service when he stunned them by coming back to life. 
No, isn't that crazy? Can you imagine the response? I mean, what do you do if you're the minister in that moment? Do you just stop the funeral? Do you throw a party? Do you just go home? Do you call a doctor? I don't know. You can find these stories all over the internet. I don't advise you taking too much time to research them. They're more edifying ways to use your time. But there are many of them out there. But four days? Four days. Well, after four days, you were deader than dead. You were double dead. It's over. Resuscitation is not possible. There's no chance like the Chinese man. Lazarus here even smelled like death. And Jesus wanted them all to smell that death. As the stone was removed, that smell would have been grand and horrible. It's as if, as Hippolytus of the third century said, Jesus hoped the foul smell might reach them and furnish them with testimony that the man was actually dead. After four days, you were dead. Now, Jesus isn't worried about Martha's concern in verse 39. Instead, he's ready to show the glory of God in verse 40. And so they removed the stone, and so the stench went out. And Jesus thanks the Father. Verse 42, here's the heart of the book again. Here's the, the reason John is writing this. These are the seven signs all culminating, all climaxing here in the seventh and final sign before his own death and resurrection. All of them built here so that we would believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus tells the Father, we've been talking about this. We've, I've been praying to you. Jesus prayed this. He is in constant communication with the Father. In fact, he prays this part of the prayer out loud. Why? Well, he tells us why. For the sake of the people. So that they would believe it's go time. Let's, let's do this. And so in verse 43, that's when Jesus cries out. With a loud voice, everybody could hear it. Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. Now, I've heard it said that it was wise on Jesus' part to say Lazarus by name. Because if he hadn't, everyone would have come out of the grave. Jesus' words are so powerful. All the dead would have been raised. What's well, true on the last day, Jesus will say, come forth and all will come forth and all will come out. But not yet. Not yet. Jesus creates and now he resuscitates. Now, aren't there some questions that we would love to ask Lazarus right about now? If we were sitting across from him having some tea or coffee, we'd like to ask him, what was it like to die what did you do for those four days? You know, what did you experience? But we get none of those answers. Again, the point of the sign was belief, not satisfying all our curiosities. Verse 44, the dead man walks. He's all wrapped up, maybe not quite like a mummy, but maybe similar. He has linen cloths wrapped around his body, wrapped around his, his, his face. People must have been as shocked as those in that Chinese funeral. Jesus had defeated death, and he raised Lazarus to life. One poem from back in the 6th century put it like this. Hurry, come, you who are always present. Jesus, if you come near, death will run away, and your friend will be delivered. I love that picture of death just running away. 
This is what happens when you become a follower of Christ. In the spiritual and in the eternal sense, death just runs away from you. Death flees from you. Death leaves you. Well, the picture of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is a picture of what God has done for us as believers already. We were dead in our sin, but the one who is the resurrection and the one who is the life has resurrected us from the dead himself. Our salvation is a picture of a dead man or a dead woman or a dead child who has been brought to life. And every one of us, every Christian, has a spiritual Lazarus story. Every Christian is a miracle. Do you know that, Christian friend? If you're saved by Jesus, you are a miracle. My wife Gloria likes to remind people that there are no boring born-again birth stories. There are no boring testimonies. Whether you became a Christian at a young age because your parents taught you the Bible, or whether you became a Christian later on in life like Adam, who I shared last week, and you came to Christ through dramatic dreams and specific sermons. Maybe you lived a wayward life and God took you out of that. Maybe you've been going to church every day of your life, regardless of your background. Christian friend, you are a miracle. You are a miracle because you were dead. And God brought your lifeless soul up from the dead and gave you life. Every Christian is a miracle. None of us could have saved ourselves. We needed God to do it for us. And this is also a picture that our bodies one day will be raised on that last day in resurrection. We'll be given glorified bodies. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. Well, we have a past act that has happened, a future act which will happen, which in turn gives us comfort now for the present. Christian, praise God today because of Christ's death your death has run away from you. Let's rejoice. Let's praise him today. Perhaps at lunch together with your friends or with your family, maybe take a few moments to share about your born-again birth story, to share your testimony of faith, to share about what your life was before you were saved and how God saved you and how he's changed your life since that point. This is one of the most encouraging things we can do as Christians with one another, to build each other up as brothers and sisters in Christ. So a surprising emotion. We've seen a surprising miracle. Finally, the sixth surprise in the seventh sign, a final one, a surprising response. A surprising response, verses 45 through 57. Let me read the rest of the chapter. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So what's the response? Well, some believe in the miracle, verse 45. But some, they tattletale to the religious leaders in verse 46. Do you know what a tattletale is? It's someone who gets someone else in trouble by reporting on their actions. Someone here is reporting to the religious leaders. The chief priests and the others, they call an emergency meeting to figure out what to do. The central court of the Jews was made up of about 70 men. It was called the Sanhedrin. They had an emergency meeting because they had a big problem in their hands. There's a man out there, a man named Jesus, and he's performing all kinds of signs and all kinds of wonders, all kinds of miracles. And verse 48 makes me laugh every time I read it these past two weeks. If we let him, Jesus, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. Everyone will believe in him. They got it, didn't they? And this can't happen, though. This can't happen. We can't have everyone believing in Jesus because if a political uprising comes, Jesus gains followers, Rome is going to take away our power. See, while Rome ruled over its empire, what they would normally do in the various provinces is have local leadership. And so the Jews had local leadership under the Roman authority. These men had power and they didn't want to lose that power. You see, Lazarus had been raised from the dead after four days. He was deader than dead. He was double dead. People saw him walking around like a mummy. The Jewish leaders couldn't deny Christ's power. They get it. But what are they more concerned about? Well, certainly not bowing down to Jesus, but figuring out how to get rid of him. A few verses earlier, verse 49, the high priest Caiaphas makes the argument, men, we have a way out of this. There's a really good plan. We just have to kill the one man. If we kill the one man, isn't that better than our whole nation dying? Isn't that better than us losing our power? If we take out Jesus, then we'll be okay. Verse 53, they looked for an opportunity to kill him. And look at their decision. Don Carson calls it terribly ironic. Think of all the irony. The Sanhedrin looks to murder Jesus in order to preserve their positions of power. But if you know your first century history, what happens less than 40 years later? 
Well, Rome destroys the whole thing. The temple is gone. The nation is destroyed. Well, the irony runs even deeper. Caiaphas is an unwitting prophet. He proclaims the substitutionary death of Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus is offered up as a sacrifice to save the nation of Israel. That's the answer to the leader's problems. But in all that, Caiaphas is actually saying the truth. Do you see that? That's why Jesus came, to save Israel. Not only that, but to save the world. Caiaphas speaks of one man dying to save the nation. He spoke truer words than he could have imagined. That's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. Think about this. The religious leaders of their day, all robed in their robes of authority and power and righteousness, all making this plan to, to destroy Jesus, to kill Jesus. They fear for the destruction of the temple, but they don't know that Jesus himself is the true temple and that the Jews will destroy the true temple themselves by killing Jesus. No, the irony is just dripping on these verses of Scripture. It's everywhere. All of this was happening while the Passover was at hand, verse 55. All this was happening while the people prepared to sacrifice the lamb in remembrance of their freedom from Egypt. Remember when, when God passed over the homes of his people and spared their lives. So right now, they're making plans to make the sacrifice. At the same time, God's true lamb, Jesus, is about to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. While seeking murder with the worst motives, all this served God's providential plan of salvation. Lazarus will live, Jesus will die, and he will be raised from the dead. Six surprises in the seventh sign. Well, this passage elicits a response from us as well. We see the surprising response, but you and I, we have to respond to this text, whether we're a Christian or not. There are ways for us to respond. And we started this morning by looking at the tears of Jesus by looking at the emotion of Jesus, by looking at the, the weeping of Jesus. But do you know what brings Jesus joy? Do you know what brings Jesus joy? Well, Dane Orland in that same book, Gentle and Lowly, shares an illustration of a doctor. Now, this is a compassionate and caring and kind doctor who goes and travels deep into a jungle, bringing with him the right medicine to cure an infectious and deadly disease. He flew in all the medical equipment. Everything is diagnosed just perfectly. He's independently wealthy, so he had no need of any help no need of any outside provision or financial compensation. But he gets there. All is in order. But what happens when he tries to provide care and healing to the tribe? Well, the tribe members want nothing to do with him. They want to try and heal on their own terms. They reject the doctor's help and people die. Well, finally, a few brave men step forward to receive the care that was freely provided. 
Now, what does the doctor feel in that moment? What does the doctor feel in that moment when those men come forward and he saves them with life-giving medicine? What does that doctor feel? Well, I'll tell you what he feels. He feels joy. He feels joy because that's the very reason he came to the jungle in the first place. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come for healing. It's his very purpose of coming to save. O Redeemer Church, Jesus weeps at the thought of death. But what brings him joy? What brings Jesus joy is sinners coming to faith. It's sinners being saved. That's why Jesus came. We see this in the Gospel of John over and over again, that those words in this Gospel were written so that we may believe and have life. And so, friend, if you're here, you don't yet know Christ, you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're investigating these claims, maybe you're just here to hear the Bible being taught, maybe you were invited by a friend even today, If you don't yet follow Christ, I plead with you, like that doctor in the jungle, I plead with you that what brings Christ joy, what brings all of us joy, and what will be the only thing that can bring you true joy is if you turn from your sin, repent of it, and trust in Jesus to save you. And when you do that, he does. He does. Life might not be easy, but you will have joy in your heart now and for all eternity. He died. And he rose. Well, friend, if you're already a follower of Christ, then remember Jesus is in control. Jesus is sovereign over your life. Jesus cares for you. Jesus weeps with you in your pain. Oh, Christian, he has authority over death and sickness. He gives us hope in the face of death. His death means cancer will be crushed. COVID testing stations will be eliminated. There will be no hand sanitizer in heaven. That's a fact. Better yet, there'll be no sin, no temptation, no pain, no suffering, no conflict, no misunderstandings, no hurt feelings, no fears, and no tears. And friend, we will be face to face with Jesus, the one who died and bled and gave his life up for us. Oh, church, we can face the uncertainties of tomorrow, knowing that Jesus is with us today. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. I feel like I can go on all day just preaching this word. It is extravagant. Your grace is too amazing to even sing of properly. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious miracle. It encourages our hearts to know how much you love us and how you've pursued us and how you are with us in our trials and in our tribulations. Father, thank you that death isn't the end of the story for us. Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.